Kathy's and my early Christian experience was during the military, which meant we moved from one place to another. And as fairly new Christians, we were very desirous of meeting with people to learn more of what the Bible had to say because we were very ignorant of its contents and looked forward to the times when we could sit with others and learn from God's truth. On one occasion, there was a couple from someone that was also in the military, worked in the hospital where I was stationed, who professed to be believers, had been believers longer than we were, and we ended up starting a Bible study together, just the four of us. And we were very enthused, very encouraged, looking forward to that time together. And we came to realize that instead of it being a study in the Bible, we really ended up having a time spent in definitions. We found out that although we used the same words, they had an altogether different meaning to that couple versus us, even in our very limited spiritual understanding and foundation. We thought for sure grace cannot mean something merited or earned, even though that was the perspective that they were coming from. So we would read a passage about grace, we would talk about grace, but they would understand that grace was something they merited or deserved, and where we were more of the persuasion that it was an unconditional gift given by God. I'm saying all of that because sometimes the simplest of things that people recognize of what it means to be a Christian can be very confusing if we don't really understand the biblical foundation for it. And here we are looking at the Apostle Paul summarizing his ministry and at the same time encouraging the elders of Ephesus to be on their guard, to watch out. Because you and I have an enemy, an adversary that is seeking individuals to devour. Isn't that right? And when we think about him, there is the acknowledgement that he is both the master of counterfeiting and the master of confusion. And if individuals can be confused, they might throw up their hands and say, well, people have a variety of opinions on what this means, so what's the use? I guess it's sufficient to say, as long as you're convinced about it, that's all that matters. Or the idea of a counterfeit being something that looks genuine, is as close as possible to the real thing but leaves out the most essential ingredient. And what I've come to realize is something as basic and something as simple as faith can be one of those areas where we find mass confusion and even counterfeiting. I need to pause for a moment because I know there are times we can be accused of being too critical. There are times when we can be accused of, you know, straining at gnats 
and swallowing camels. But I'm reminded that Jesus, at the end of the um, Sermon on the Mount, said the following. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, many will say to me on that day. Do you hear that? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. A parent who doesn't warn his or her offspring of the dangers that they might encounter is a negligent parent. A shepherd who has under Christ the responsibility of giving an account for the souls of those to whom he is privileged to minister is a negligent shepherd who has no love for the sheep that can allow them to stay in a state of confusion and not be concerned about the reality of whether or not there is a relationship with Christ. These individuals that are spoken of by Christ were not just mere bystanders when it comes to what you and I would call Christianity. These were active leaders. These were individuals who are prophesying in the name of Jesus Christ. These are individuals who are working miracles in the name of Jesus Christ. These were individuals who were casting out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. Regardless of how sincere they were, regardless of how beneficial what they did may have been, what really matters is what Jesus Christ has to say to them and what he will say to us. And what he said to them was, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness, confused about faith, having a counterfeit of the faith that saves. And so I ask you the question, where is your faith? And is it the faith that the Bible describes that leads to eternal life? Or is it a faith that will embarrass you and shame you when you stand before Jesus Christ? And what we are looking at together is far more important and significant than whether or not a grocery store has to pull some 
item off the shelf because it might contain bacteria. We're talking about eternal damnation and separation from God. So notice what Paul said to the elders recorded for us in Acts chapter 20 and what we can learn from him in what he said to them. We know in Acts chapter 20, this is Paul's farewell address to the elders in Ephesus. These were men he loved. These were men he knew. As we learned in this section, these are men with whom he had personally ministered for three years. And he said to them, verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The church does not belong to any human leader, regardless of how prominent that leader might be. The church belongs to God himself, and he paid the price for it with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw disciples away after them. As Paul gave this admonition to them to be watchful, to be sure they understood the inevitable that is coming, that the master counterfeiter, the evil being of confusion would be very actively at work. It'd be individuals from the outside who would come in as devouring wolves to destroy the flock. It would be individuals arising even from the leadership of the church to draw disciples away after themselves. And so Paul, concluding this, says, well, I now commend you to God in the word of his grace, which alone is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And while we will spend a little more time looking at this later, what I need to recognize is that the word of God is the safeguard that God has given to his people, that they are not led astray by this leadership that begins to draw disciples away after themselves, that the word of God is the safeguard to keep them from embracing falsehoods that are detrimental to their eternal well-being. And as Paul lays out the importance to be on their guard, to recognize they're in a spiritual conflict, he recounts to them his ministry in their midst. And what Paul made them know in this short farewell address is that he remained faithful to the calling he had received from God. Notice he says in verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring you anything that was profitable, teaching you both publicly and from house to house. If you look over in verse 24, he said, I don't consider my life as any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry of which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And then in verse 25, and behold, I know that you all among whom I went about preaching the kingdom of God will not see my face no, will, uh, see my face no more. 
And in verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Paul was faithful in his ministry as he proclaimed God's truth for the well-being of those who heard. And he summarizes the reality of this whole purpose of God. He summarizes what he preached to them when he says in verse 21, solemnly testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the terms we read here is a term that obviously has fallen out of vogue in our day. We don't talk about repentance. It's not necessary because, after all, God needs us. After all, God's going to just give us a happier way to be what we already are. We don't talk about the need of a new birth, the need of regeneration, the need of an inward transformation. And so Paul summarized his ministry by saying, what I did was taught you, I testified about repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just to help you, if you turn to read different commentaries on what's here, you will read some that will say something to the effect that what Paul was saying is that when he spoke to the Jews, he talked to them about repentance. And when he spoke to the Gentiles, he talked to them about faith. And so we can understand why in our Gentile culture today that we would have more of an emphasis on faith than we would on repentance. But then I start looking at the scripture and I find out it doesn't quite fit into that category. All we have to do is read through the book of Acts. And I hope you can appreciate why it's so important to read through the book of Acts. Because in the book of Acts, we have infallible instruments. Not that they couldn't sin in their life. But when it came to ministry and it came to proclaiming the truth, what is it to go out and evangelize? Read the book of Acts. You will find the apostle Peter in his evangelistic efforts. You will find the apostle Paul in his evangelistic efforts. And therefore, they become the models for us of how it is we should be doing evangelism as well. If I go back to Acts chapter 17, here we find Paul dealing with the great thinkers in Athens. And just notice how he concludes his message. In verse 30 of Acts 17, he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should what? Well, he's not talking to Jews. He is talking to the great philosophers Individuals that you would know as, now while it's not these individuals at that day, but the sources of Aristotle and Socrates, etc., the great thinkers of their day. 
And he says to them, they had a misconception about God. He's not a being that dwells in temples made by human hands. They had a misconception about the fact that you think God's somebody that needs you and he doesn't need any of us. In fact, we all derive our existence from him and are utterly dependent upon him. Therefore, God is now declaring to all men that they should repent. And why is it they need to repent? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men. How? By raising him from the dead, from the, res- the resurrection of Christ. Or if you go over to Acts chapter 26, look at verse 18. Paul is recounting the commission that was given to him by the Lord Jesus on the road to Amas- Damascus. Verse 15, he says, I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But now arise, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I shall appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified. How? What's the channel? Through faith in me. And what I need to understand, it is not either or. When Paul looked at the commission he had received from Christ, it was a commission to proclaim God's truth that individuals would believe and put their trust in Jesus Christ. And included in biblical faith is the idea of repentance. And when you read through the book of Acts, you will find on some occasions that the speaker will emphasize repentance and on other occasions he will emphasize faith. It's because you and I need to understand it is not either repentance or faith, it is both and. And that both items make up the idea of a confident trust in Jesus Christ. Now what is repentance? Well, repentance in its basic format means you need to change your thinking. You need to look at things differently. And as Paul spoke to those on Mars Hill in Athens, he made it very clear, you have a conception about what God is like. And in their case, they were polytheistic and they believed these many items were God. And Paul says, I'm declaring to you the one true God. You need to think differently. And you need to come to grips with the fact that God isn't placated by. God isn't dependent upon the things that you bring to him. Instead, in him we live and move and have our being. And all of us derive our existence from him. You need to change your thinking. Repentance. Now, is it any different today? If we start talking about what does it mean to trust Christ... If there is anything that we need to have in our message today is to remind people your view of God is beneath the dignity of God. 
Even at the end of the 1900s, theologians were telling us that the God of America is a being that does not command the respect of any thinking being. If, if you look at how God is presented today, what is the sense in trusting him? I mean, after all, the God that is presented popular today is a God that needs us. He's a God who can't move unless we do something. He is a God who is impotent, not a God who is omnipotent. Our culture needs to repent. We need to change our thinking. We need to recognize the distinctive character of God. If I listen to so much of popular music and what is described, I mean, what is generally conveyed is the fact that God's just longing to do something, but he can't do anything because we're not taking the first step. I want you to understand the God of glory is the prime mover. He's the one that moves first. He is not dependent upon us. Heard this past week, one of the forms of what I'm talking about, um, and I know it has to do somewhat with likes and dislikes in music, but the words just really arrested me. It starts with, if you want to steal my show, I'll sit back and watch you go. Do you hear what he's saying? Speaking about his life and what he's doing, God, if you want to steal my show, that's almost blasphemous. Your life, your existence does not belong to you. And for God to take charge of it is not God stealing it from you. It is a recognition that we are accountable to God whether we acknowledge it or not. How foolish for us to ever think that we as the clay can tell the potter, why did you make me like this? And you know, if you'd like to do something with my life, I'll just sit back and watch you at work. The reality is God is accomplishing his purpose with all creatures, isn't he? God is never frustrated. Whatever he has planned, whatever he has purposed, he is bringing to pass. And what I need to understand is, is that, that I am going to have the faith that saves what Paul preached as is recorded for us in the book of Acts. If I am putting my confident trust in Christ and not one of those that will be disappointed and embarrassed at the end when I stand before him and say, but Lord, but Lord, but Lord. The reality is I have a different view of God. He is the high and exalted one. He is the sovereign who is over all. He is the one that gives life and breath to all things. He is the one to whom I'm accountable. And I need him. He does not need me. I'm dependent on him. He is not dependent on me. And the great blessing is the fact that I can be an individual that has a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly enough, these two ideas of biblical repentance, which is associated with biblical faith, 
can be perverted. And so today we have a pollution or corruption of faith. I can begin by first making repentance a work. Individuals recognize that the Bible teaches that unless you repent, you're going to perish. And so individuals are not sure, and they have individuals who instruct them to the fact that maybe you weren't sincere when you repented. Maybe you need to repent more. Maybe you need to belittle yourself more in order to make yourself worthy of being saved. Well, that's works. That's not faith. God doesn't tell you that if you can humble yourself enough and see how lowly you are, you scum, you worm on the ground, now God's going to save you. The reality is we're all unworthy before him. And I need to come to grips with it regardless of how much I may see it in my experience. I don't make repentance a work to make myself savable. The second is that we live in a culture that has done the same thing to faith. How do you know you're a Christian? Well, I prayed a prayer. I have searched my New Testament to find the sinner's prayer. I have run the Romans road. I don't find Peter or Paul ever preaching that in the book of Acts. I'm an individual that believes that water washes away my sin. It's called water or baptismal regeneration. I'm an individual that believes I made a decision to follow Christ. And my faith is in my work, my decision, my prayer, my walking an aisle, etc., other than in Jesus Christ. I have perverted faith into a work, and I am basing my acceptance with God on something I have done instead of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Splitting hairs? I don't think so. If we look at all the forms of evangelism that are so common and popular today, since we're saturated with them, we think they must be biblical. When the reality is they don't have a very long history. And as far as going back to our culture, they go to a man by the name of Charles Finney. Because Finney was convinced that you could manufacture decisions for Christ. Finney was convinced that people had the capability of coming to God. And so he began the great revival movements where they would have the music to get everyone into the mood and they would have the altar calls to have individuals come and he saturated northern and western New York with his ministry. 
And at least he was honest to say, I am very discouraged about the effect of my ministry at the end of his life. Because I have gone back to the places where we held these revivals and with all the great enthusiasm, with the multitudes making decisions for Christ, and as far as finding how many have walked with the Lord, I could count them on one hand. Salvation is a work of God. It is not the work of man. And dear brother and sister in Christ, God never commanded his people, the leadership in the church or the church itself to go into all the world and make decisions for Christ. He said, make disciples. And a disciple is far different than someone who said, I have decided to follow Jesus. I've asked him into my heart, which I still can't figure out what all that means. What I find from the biblical context is that what the apostles preached was repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our day, we have made both faith and repentance works. Almost 50 years ago, a man wrote a work called Today's Gospel, Authentic or Synthetic, and he said the same. In the central issue of the way of salvation, large segments of Protestantism are engrossed in neo-traditionalism. We have inherited a system of evangelistic preaching which is unbiblical. Nor is this tradition very ancient. Our message and manner of preaching the gospel cannot be traced back to the Reformation and their creeds. They are much more recent innovations. Worse yet, they cannot be traced to the scriptures. They have clearly arisen from a superficial exegesis and a careless mixture of 20th century reason with God's revelation. Again, he says, though unintentionally so, deceit marks many modern invitations to Christ. Audiences are reminded that they're sad, they're lonely, they're discouraged, They're unsuccessful. Life is a great weight to them. Troubles encompass them. The future holds dark threats. Then sinners are invited to come to Christ, who will change all of that and put a smile on their faces. He is pictured as some cosmic psychologist who will patch up all problems in one session on the inquiry room couch. Isn't that what we tell people? They need Jesus because they're sad. They need Jesus because they're lonely. They need Jesus because their life is falling apart. 
You need Jesus because you're under the wrath of God. And as a fugitive from divine justice, it's no wonder that you're sad and depressed and have all these problems because you've been running for your life from the king of glory. We need Christ not to make us happy. We need Christ not to give us a sense of fulfillment. We need Christ not to make our life fuller and better. We need Christ to save us from our sins. We need Christ to make make us acceptable to God. And here's where the evil one so carefully tweaks. Do Christian people have fulfillment in life? Amen. Do Christian people have an enrichment in life that the people of this world will never know? Amen. Does Jesus Christ provide his people with a sense of well-being that regardless of what is my lot, regardless of what my portion in life may be, I can say it is well with my soul. But the evangelistic message is that God is declaring that all men everywhere should repent. Don't think of God as this impotent being who can't get along without you. Don't think of yourself as someone who God just needs desperately. But recognize he gave me existence. I'm accountable to him. And whatever he says about me, no one or nothing will change that verdict. And when I stand before him, he will either say of me, well done, good and faithful servant. Or he will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, because I never knew you. And in both cases, for both groups, everybody was talking about Jesus. So my real question for you, where is your faith? We recognize that without faith, you can't please God. It's the foundation, it's bottom line. But may we also understand that a lot of people can be using the word faith but they had a total different meaning to it than what the Bible teaches. And just like Kathy and I found it so difficult to have a Bible study with a couple who used the same words but had a meaning of those terms far different from what the Bible was teaching us. So it is in our day. There's a lot of people talking about heaven that ain't going there to go with the song of the group a cappella from back in the 90s. The recognition is I need to be an individual that recognizes only God can save me from my sins, that I'm unacceptable to him the way I am. Only he can make me a new creation in Christ. And apart from Jesus Christ, I have no hope. May God stir our hearts to seek his face, to find the place of quiet rest, 
near to the heart of God and that we are not trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ and his all-sufficient work on Calvary's cross. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your truth. Father, we have nothing to commend us to you. If you are not the one that opens our eyes to cause us to understand, we too will be completely deceived about our true position before you. I pray for your mercy. Father, that each of us will have our eyes only on Christ, who is the author and perfecter of faith, and be depending upon him and him alone, not something we have done to mistakenly think that it merits your forgiveness. But Father, we come to you with open hands, nothing we can bring, and simply to the cross of Christ we cling. In his name we pray, amen.